When Antonin Scalia died in February 2016, it was a lucky break for union members across the nation, especially for those in the public sector. Now, I know that we shouldn't be rejoicing when someone passes away, at least not publicly, but that was the fact when Scalia passed away. Now, that luck is probably running its course because the ghost of Scalia lives on in a much more superficial and lightweight version in Neil Gorsuch. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for February 28th, 2018. Now, back when Scalia was alive, the Supreme Court was poised to rule in a case known as Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association. And it was almost certainly going to be a decision that would go against the union in a 5-4 vote. When Scalia didn't wake up from his sleep, the case eventually came down to a 4-4 tie vote, thus sparing the teachers and the rest of the labor movement a devastating defeat. But now that defeat is likely upon us, sure to come down by June of this year. As you may have heard this past Monday, the court heard oral arguments in a case called Janus versus AFSME. AFSME, of course, stands for the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. And if I was a betting man, and well, actually, sometimes I am a betting man, I'd wager, along with most people, I think, that the court is going to issue a 5-4 decision in favor of Janus and against AFSCME. And that decision is likely to come down in June when the court issues most of its decisions just before it goes on vacation. So we're going to devote the entire podcast to this case because it is an important case for public sector unions for all the labor movement, and frankly, for all workers in the country. And you're going to hear from three experts you won't find collected anywhere else, frankly. And it's a deep look first at the right-wing funding behind the Janus case. Then second, I'm going to turn to Randy Weingarten, the leader of the National Teachers Union, the American Federation of Teachers. And then we're going to end up with a view from inside the argument at the Supreme Court that took place on Monday from a top union legal mind, the AFT's general counsel, David Strom. But first, what the hell are we talking about in this case? So when unions engage in collective bargaining... They are required to represent all workers in a workplace, even if someone chooses not to join the union and pay union dues. Now, for those people who choose not to join the union, they are required to pay what is known as fair share fees. It's also known sometimes as quote-unquote agency fees. And those fees cover the basic costs that the union incurs in the process of bargaining And then after the bargaining is concluded, making sure the contract terms are abided by for all workers. And of course, all that activity does cost money. You have to hire staff people to do that. There's all sorts of costs that go into doing all that work. Now, that makes sense, right? You don't get services for free. And I would just say that's a standard complaint you hear from right-wingers all the time about government services. And if a non-union member, that's somebody who has not paid union dues, has a grievance along the way, sometimes that can cost tens of thousands of dollars to defend that person's rights, which is where that fair share fee comes in. 
Now, if you took away the right of unions to collect fair share fees, it would encourage workers to grab the benefits of union representation without paying a dime. And slowly, that would undermine unions and the workers' ability to organize and bargain collectively because, as I said, all that costs money in staff time and other costs. And that actually is the goal of these right-wing attacks through these legal cases, these right-wing attacks against unions, to drain unions of the ability to organize workers and to defend their rights. And I want to be clear, those fair share fees, the ones that are paid by people who do not belong to a union, only cover a union's expenses that are connected to collective bargaining contract administration. Not a dime goes for political or ideological advocacy, for example. Not a dime of that money goes to supporting, say, Democratic candidates. Of course, this is obvious. Workers might not pay union dues, but they get the higher wages and benefits that the union negotiates on behalf of everyone. And the next obvious point is, if somehow the fair share fees were eliminated, but you were actually paying union dues, you might look around and just think, why am I doing that? I'm going to be a free rider too. And some people might then decide to leave the union and stop paying union dues. Let's face it, unfortunately, free riding is kind of a part of human nature. Now, this whole idea of fair share fees, agency fees, isn't a new idea. The principle of collecting fair share fees has been challenged before, but it's been upheld for decades, decades. In fact, more than 40 years ago, the Supreme Court unanimously, I want to underscore unanimously, concluded in a case called Abood, that's A-B-O-O-D for those of you who want to Google it, concluded in Abood versus Detroit Board of Education that fair share fees could be collected from public sector workers. And the court stated back there, back in that case called Abood, that the state had a legitimate interest in preventing free riders from undermining a union's ability to represent the bargaining union. And why is that? Because one thing that collective bargaining does is it creates order and it creates predictability. If you have an organization like a union representing all workers, then the other side, in this case the state, can be sure that the union is representing all the workers and therefore they can engage in collective bargaining to reach some sort of contract. And then there is some sort of order and collective idea that here are the conditions that everybody is going to work under and you can kind of plan for that. And also to underscore the point I just made before about separating monies from what a union does for collective bargaining versus what it does in political activity, back in that case, the Abood case, the court also struck a bound saying unions had to separate fair share fees that it used for collective bargaining from the part of union dues used, and now I'm quoting, for the expression of political views on behalf of political candidates or toward the advancement of other ideological causes not germane to its duties as collective bargaining representative. So what has changed? Not the legal idea at all, 
But the Supreme Court has changed and changed dramatically. It's essentially become a right-wing conservative institution whose mission every day is to destroy unions and protect and give more power to wealthy people and corporations. And you could see that, for example, in the Citizens United case, which we know quite well, has now allowed rich people, billionaires, to spend as much as they want to influence elections. And to accomplish its mission, the court ideologues, the conservative ideologues, are quite content to ignore decades of precedent. You may know that the Supreme Court lives on the notion of precedent, and yet it's willing to ignore decades of precedent, like the Abood case, to destroy unions and, by extension, to destroy the livelihoods of millions of people. Now, the attack against fair share fees actually has happened over the span of a relatively short period of time, about five, six, seven years. The first case was Harris versus Quinn. And the only reason the court did not destroy the fair share concept back then was really for a narrow reason. It found that it did not apply because the home care workers in that case were not actually full-fledged public opinions. But what was most important about, really, that case was the majority opinion written by Samuel Alito. And that majority opinion essentially invited, encouraged the right-wingers to bring forth a more solid case that would allow the court a chance to strike down fair share fees. And I want to pause here to make just one point. Samuel Alito is in many ways the most hard-charging warrior on the court for the conservative ideologues. He doesn't really get the same media attention, in my opinion, perhaps as the chief justice does, or the sexual predator and obvious perjurer Clarence Thomas, who gets attention, frankly, mostly for never saying a word in oral arguments, but consistently ruling in the most hostile way against any progressive idea. But make no mistake about it. Alito is focused. He's got a laser focus. And he's relentless in undoing every aspect of a decent progressive society. So then came April 2014 and a suit filed by a group of teachers in what was known as Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association. And that oral argument was in January 2016. And there was little doubt that the court would find against the teachers' union. And then Scalia didn't wake up from his nap. Which brings us to today, to Janice versus AFSCME. Now, the main thing to understand here, in my opinion, is that this succession of cases isn't arising on its own or by some miracle or as a result of individual grassroots action. This is a carefully orchestrated assault on unions by deeply conservative right-wing organizations and billionaires. Now, to their credit, unlike progressives, the right wing has been focused with a very clear strategy for a very, very long time. And part of that focus has been, for example, on a mission to take over state legislatures so they could, as they did in Wisconsin, destroy collective bargaining rights. It's a fundamentally broad strategy to kill unions because unions have been the principal check on billionaires and corporations, not just in collective bargaining, which essentially is a process that translates the hard work and wealth creation of workers into money in the pockets of workers, 
this is the point I often make, the wealth that's created in this country and around the world is not the result of a few CEOs. It's the result of the hard work of millions of workers. They're the ones that create the wealth in corporations. But beyond collective bargaining, unions have been the principal check on billionaires and corporations in society because they've been a check on authoritarian power and concentration of wealth. Just to make one point, you can literally look at a graph, and I've seen those graphs, and you can look them up, Google them, and look at a chart and look at two lines over the last 40 years. Take one line that shows the slow decline of union power and look at another line that looks at the exact opposite increase of wealth inequality. Essentially, the rich get richer as unions get weaker. And that's really what is behind the Janus case. The rich want to get richer. Now, who are these people? And this is now turning to my first guest. Well, the Economic Policy Institute has looked into who these people are in a study just published. And it found, in fact, the same rogues and despicable people we find behind the worst of the worst, the bigots, the racists, the wealthy, and the powerful. So to discuss this, I want to bring in Celine McNicholas. Celine is EPI's labor counsel who knows a lot about the labor law part of the Janus case, having served as director of congressional and public affairs and as a special counsel for the National Labor Relations Board, which is the institution that oversees the implementation of labor law. And she also knows the policy and political aspect through her congressional work from 2009 to 2013 as a senior labor counsel to then ranking member George Miller on the Committee on Education and the Workforce. And Celine, one of the things that I think is really great about this report is not only do you track the history of these anti-union assaults on Uh, in the public sector, on public sector workers in terms of the various cases. But you've now dug into who is behind these cases, the the donor network. And I think this is important for people to understand. It's not as if there was this great grassroots, you know, upsurge of all these people marching in the streets saying, I want to sue on this case. This was all carefully orchestrated and funded by some very anti-union forces, right? That's correct. And I think that that's what's most scary about this case is these groups are not unknown to to activists. I think that we're familiar with some of these names. They've been active in some of the state campaigns, the right to work campaigns, certainly what's happened in Wisconsin and Michigan. These are the same groups that are, you know, funding those legislative battles, those political battles, which are certainly more public. But now you're seeing them engaged in, in a commitment to litigation of an issue that's really far reaching in terms of its impact for working people. And so just so we dig into this, you know, one of the themes that runs through at least the three cases you uh, cite, the Harris v. Quinn case, Friedrichs versus California, and the Janus case, which is the one that's pending now, the, the name that jumps out in all three is what's known as the Donors Capital Fund or Donors Trust. And you point out in the report that among those contributors to that fund, to that organization, which then puts money into efforts, campaigns, and so on are, for example, the Koch brothers, the DeVos family, which is the family of Betsy DeVos, the so-called education 
uh, secretary. And so these are longtime right-wing billionaire funders. Yes, that's exactly right. The, it's essentially a, a group that is largely managed by um, the Koch family, and they pool money from, as you said, the DeVos family and other sort of wealthy corporate interest families that um, contribute to these sort of anti-worker uh, causes. And there's nothing new here. You know, as I said, these names are not unfamiliar, certainly to workers' advocates. Um, but I think it is, it's, it's really troubling to me that they've, they've kind of been able to accomplish what they have in a relatively relatively short time with this Supreme Court case. You know, they've, as you mentioned, brought this issue now before the court three times in roughly five years. Uh, I think that they felt that they were going to get the outcome that they were, you know, desired in the Friedrichs case, but um, with the passing of um, uh, Justice Scalia that, that ended in a, in a 4-4 split um, and there was no ultimate ruling on the issue. Um, so, you know, we're back again, you know, with this issue being heard yesterday before the court and now with um, what I would consider uh, sort of a rigged uh, court at this point because of the failure of uh, the Republicans in the Senate-led by you know Mitch McConnell to even consider President Obama's nominee Merrick Garland to the court, you're kind of getting a, a significant bang for the buck in, in investing in that process and the way that these groups you know did. All of this money is so tied into these political fights. Yes, and not to digress too much into the actual argument that happened on Monday, but a, a lot was made of Neil Gorsuch's silence. But let's face it, he's just a more lightweight version of Scalia. Lightweight meaning, as far as I can tell from his previous decisions and comments, he's not as intellectually uh, armed well, to put it mildly, as Scalia. Whether you agree with Scalia or not, he tended to make very uh, complicated arguments in his own view, but Gorsuch seems to be uh, pretty superficial. And there's no doubt in my mind, he's as ideologically right-wing as Scalia, if not more so. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, while you're right, a great deal of, of the coverage around the argument was sort of that he did not participate in, in asking questions and remained relatively silent throughout the entire argument. I think if you look at the fact that since he joined the court last April, he has voted 100 percent of the time with who I would argue is now the most conservative justice on the on the court, and that's Clarence Thomas. So uh, if you, you know, regardless of what's said, what line of questioning is pursued by a, a given justice during an argument, I think if you look at the ultimate, uh, you know, outcome of their decision making, you know, that's very telling. And certainly, um, you know, Justice Gorsuch is siding with the most conservative elements of the court. So let's just circle back for a second to your wonderful report, which actually people can read at epi.org. Um, in Harris versus Quinn, another name that a familiar name that pops up in, if if you will, right wing circles is the Walton Family Foundation, and I think they're especially interesting to focus on because it, they make a habit of, if you will, attacking workers and workers' standard of living in two ways. One is that they fund these kinds of lawsuits against workers' rights to be represented, and number two, they're one of the most anti union companies in their own workplace, and essentially make their profits, their billions of dollars. The Walton heirs, the five or six of them are worth over $100 billion, maybe $120 billion at this point. They make that over poverty of their workers and poverty of their shoppers. 
Yes, that's absolutely right. There's um, arguably no more impactful employer in terms of setting the standards for workers in this country than um, Walmart has been over the last 25, 30 years. Uh, they've, you know, not only set the standards just because they they are such a large employer in this country, but they also, to your point, have been um, quite savvy in uh, participating in lobbying, um, in investing in political fights to ensure that those standards are, um, you know, are held back for working people, uh, which is, you know, very troubling, obviously. And one other connection I want to make, and certainly if you want to point out other ones, please feel free to do so. But one other one that jumped out at me very clearly is in the Kern case, Janus versus AFSCME. Uh, one name that pops up is the Mercer Family Foundation. And as people may know, the Mercer Family Foundation were great funders of Steve Bannon, especially until they had a recent falling out, but of Breitbart. And so that makes to me and draws the circle around the anti-union forces, the white supremacist movement, the bigotry and racism that we see in the country. And they're all in some way in the same circle. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, we were only able to do, you know, dot connecting in in this report because so much of this occurs outside of the public sphere. There's there's limited transparency. Um, The way these organizations function, these family foundations, which funnel a great deal of money on behalf of these organizations, is they really are not required to file disclosures that in any way allow us to to really look in and assess um, what's going on in terms of the financial uh, backing that they're providing to, to causes. What we've been able to piece together are, is largely from tax filings that we've we've been able to, to find because there is some measure of transparency in those documents. But to your point, the, the web is, um, is absolutely uh, difficult to track. And there's a great deal of overlap in terms of sort of these most right-wing, you know, conservative uh, causes that these groups just funnel a, a tremendous amount of money to support. Yes. And these groups are also funding, for example, the National Rifle Association, the Federal Society, the Heritage Foundation, which uh, dates back a couple of three decades ago. And these funders, in fact, this although the cases you cite and dig into, the last three cases attacking public sector unions, relatively new, but their funding and their strategic investment in right-wing causes uh, including legislative races trying to take over state governments, that dates back 20 and 30 years, if not more. Yes. And I mean, they are they are at a moment now where I, I am repeatedly, as I've looked into this and, and did some of the research, I was repeatedly struck by, you know, this is a moment where they're experiencing a great deal of payoff for that investment. You see that in what's happened um, throughout the country in different state legislative battles, certainly Wisconsin. Um, you know, you saw that with passage of Act 10 uh, in, in Michigan. You're seeing, you know, for, for what these groups, for the money that these groups have in, in their coffers, for a relatively low-level investment, they are dramatically altering the world in which we all live in a way that very much advantages them and very much disadvantages the average uh, working person who's who's sort of living in the world that they've been able to create with these political and now you know this litigation fight. And I'm I'm just shocked by the relative low investment that's been required to produce this sort of you know, far sweeping um, results when you look at the cash that these groups have on hand from what we've been able to determine. Right. Uh, And the people involved, they're multi-billionaires. So that's a relatively small investment for what ends up being 
a great cash flow to them. For example, if you look at the Ed Uline Foundation, uh, that fellow and that foundation was very involved in Wisconsin and supporting Scott Walker, who then turned around and delivered for them by, number one, attacking the public sector unions and basically taking away the right to have uh, unions, essentially, collective bargaining in Wisconsin almost from the first day that he was inaugurated. Yes, I'd say the the Ulan Family Foundation is a great example of uh, a, a family a foundation that we would think of as oh that sounds like a small family foundation, but with hundreds of millions of dollars you know at their disposal, and for you know a couple million dollars here and there, they've been able to produce the desired policy outcomes um, that have dramatically advantaged their business holdings and you know changed the scope of work in Wisconsin for the vast majority of people who work for a living. And I wonder when. Maybe just sort of as we come to the end of our conversation, I wonder if this is something that struck you as it struck me that it's true that they have billions of dollars. But to your point, with a relatively small amount of money, they've, you know, basically changed much of the way the country is going to look going into the future, certainly when it comes to union bargaining rights and thus the ability of the middle class to survive and grow and expand. And it's just very strategic on their part. And I was struck by thinking about that, about how unstrategic progressive movements and the left have been in that same period. If you look at the way in which uh, the right wing has taken over these state legislatures, for example, to move away from the Janus case, the, the political aspect, if you look at the way they've done this strategically over many years, funded by these right wing groups, the, the left progressives have not uh, kept pace. That's absolutely correct. I think part of that is that since the uh, passage or the passage since um, Citizens United was uh, the the law of the land, you know, these folks have changed their playbook to, you know, sort of meet the new reality. And it's a great it's a much more difficult challenge for groups that do not have those resources to sort of play by the new money is is gospel and politics rules. Um, these groups have been sort of uniquely well situated to to play in that new reality. So I do sort of think that you are starting to see from many of the grassroots movements that have crept up in response to some of what you've seen in Wisconsin and in Michigan. You know, I'm routinely heartened by sort of seeing how people are responding, refusing to sort of allow uh, these these policy shifts on behalf of these wealthy donors without any kind of meaningful resistance. I do think that that is changing, um, but you're exactly right that this is something that's kind of crept up, that people were not prepared for that new playbook on the progressive side. But I absolutely see that that the tide is, is changing. And I think that the, the Trump moment has only heightened uh, the intensity with which we're seeing that change. So what's the view of the leaders of the public sector unions? And for that, I want to bring in a longtime union comrade who has been on the podcast in the past. Randy Weingarten is the national president of the American Federation of Teachers. And I sat down with Randy just a few days ago at the California State Democratic Party convention, which took place in San Diego. And Randy, one of the things that we just talked about in the EPI report 
which I think is just a great way of starting with you because you've been in this fight for so long, is that this Janus case, and more important, the supporters of these right-wing attacks are nobody new. Um, this great API report, for example, pointed out that among the funders for the Janus uh, lawsuit was the Mercer Family Foundation, and we know that they were big funders of, among others, Steve Bannon until they had the recent falling out. And then you and go- And Donald Trump. And Donald Trump. And if you go back even to the case Harris versus Quinn, which was another attack on public sector unions, you find the Waltons, the Walton family, which are right-wingers and Republican funders. So what does that say to you about the theme here about who's behind all this? Well, and then also the state policy network, also the state policy network, which is a Koch-inspired group. Look, we know who's behind all this, and actually they're pretty audacious now in um, in making it clear that um, they want to, their words not mine, defund and defang unions. Um, they, the, the Bradley Foundation, the Koch brothers, the DeVos um, family, the Mackinac Center, the Heritage Foundation, some of which are on this list, some of which are not. Their goal is to concentrate their wealth even further than it is. And they know, frankly, they sometimes know better than our own members, mm -hmm. that the union movement and unions are pretty much the only legal vehicle and long-term institutional vehicle that can help regular folk create a better life. Things that are not possible for individuals become possible with collective action that only a union can do, um, both um, at a bargaining table and at the ballot box. And so these groups um, understand power, and they are not constrained by morality or, or a sense that the country is better off with shared prosperity. They really want and, and strive for another Gilded Age. And you see that now, the concentration of wealth, the, the divide between rich and poor is as great today as it was 100 years ago. Um, and, and you can see it in terms of their strategies of using the courts, um, if they can get control over the courts, um, electing people in the legislature. Um, and the first thing they do, think about what happened in Wisconsin. The first thing they do is go after unions. The second thing they do is go after voting. And the third thing they do is go after public education. Mm -hmm. And uh, you see that time and time again. In the courts, think about what just happened. The Koch brothers and, and their, you know, spinoffs basically told Republicans um, after Justice Scalia died that, they, that if they even gave Justice Judge Garland a hearing, they would be primaried. Hmm. If they even gave him a hearing or a meeting. Um, and no one did. And then... Um, because from their point of view, that fifth vote on the Supreme Court 
that was crucial. That was crucial for, for that for this strategy. Right. That yeah. that fifth vote was crucial for so for the strategy of economic concentration of power. If you look at what the five votes had been um, in the last you know several years. Um, you see a court that would um, almost always side with corporations over workers or the economic power of the elite over others. Now, I think that people see, you know, that in the marriage cases were amazing. And the fact that Kennedy went with us on the marriage cases were terrific. But that obscures the economic line of cases that 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 routinely. I mean, calling corporations people, mm. and 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 so so. Not to mention uh, the whole uh, Citizens United, which exactly allowed right. corporations to spend as much money as they want to right. attack us, and 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 pretended that you know there was an equivalence between corporations and unions, which there never is. Mm. The level of spending that these folks have done is obscene and corrosive to our democracy. Having said that, think about what happened. So they didn't want, they were going to do everything in their power to to st- to thwart um, President Obama's choice. And, and it didn't matter what the argument was. They, and since they had the Senate, they'd do everything in their power to do that. And even remember, when John McCain was running again, he said, even if Hillary Clinton became president, they would filibuster if they kept the Senate, um, her nominee to the Supreme Court. And the first, virtually one of the first things that Trump did was um, nominate Gorsuch. And literally within a week after Gorsuch was confirmed. So Trump took Gorsuch to the Janus case. And the Janus case, and this is why, you know, they can't even with a straight face um, make this a colorable claim about Mark Janice because the Janice case wasn't brought by Janice initially. It was brought by Governor Bruce Rauner. And when he was kicked out of it, they found um, this guy to substitute for him. Mm-hmm. So this is, an, and this is a right-wing induced case um, because they want to destroy the labor movement because they know that the labor movement is the only check and balance against them the o- and the only real vehicle that regular folks have for a better life. Now, I just on this point about Janice and them substituting him, but they had many cases in the pipeline ready to percolate up, right? They, Absolutely. If it hadn't been that one, it would have been something else. Right. Once Scalia died and Friedrichs was a 4-4 tie, eventually... No, they a- had about 17 cases. But my right. point is, yeah. it's all based upon... These cases were not brought by individuals... Like even Rebecca Friedrichs, they cold called people. We found out later on to find the plaintiffs. This is they they have a legal strategy, and then they try to find a plaintiff, almost as if that person is the actor in the case, right. um, as a way to have a face on it, um, to try to then undermine um, the rights of millions of others. And so now on your point that you ended with, which I want to pick up on, I think even, you know, my listeners who I generally think are mostly progressives, liberals. Hi, listeners. (laughs) I still think that they need to hear 
why should they care about public sector unions? I mean, honestly, sometimes because lots of people, especially, if you will, younger people have not been in a union. They don't understand the connection of union power to democracy to a decent standard of living. So I don't think it right. is a bad thing to make those connections for people. So let me um, let me try to not wear my social studies teacher hat for too long. It's good. You're um, a teacher. That's why we need you here. But let me, let me, let me do it in this way. Let me do it um, through the lens of history. That most of us have no economic power ourselves. I guess if you're rich or if you have great relationships and or you have a particular skill, you're going to have individual economic power because of that. Um, but there's always been in this country these kind of two competing theories of how do you create shared prosperity to lift all boats versus how do you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know, if you could do it, everybody else can do it. And, you know, and, and the stories of the Carnegie. Dale, or I was the, thinking you know, Dale Carnegie, right? Exactly. So, you can become a millionaire if you just work hard enough. Exactly. So there's always been these two competing you know, philosophies in America. Um, and they're called different things at different times. And so, but in the, in the 19, in, in the aftermath of the Great Depression, 29, 30, 31, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was able to get past the National Labor Relations Act which for the first time on a national level, you know, some states had had this before, including New York, but on a national level, uh, people were allowed to engage in concerted action and form a union who could then negotiate the terms and conditions of employment with the employer. Because before that, and I'm a proud UAW member, it was battles in the street. It was, you know, sit-down strikes. It was really very vicious, and people were shot down, literally killed by thugs, by Pinkertons, and it was, exactly it was right. bloody and violent. And, and because the only way you could create that kind of economic power would be to have enough power in the street to create that. And frankly, most of us, you know, Almost every legal law that recognizes collective bargaining started with, you know, a knockdown, drag-out struggle. But so, so for the private sector, there was the National Labor Relations Act, and then there was the Railway Labor Act. And what you saw be, between the 30s, and, you know, part of this was the civil, uh, part of this was World War II and, you know, and, and the mentality of the vets coming back and the, you know, and the GI Bill that we had a responsibility to the regular folks in America who fought these wars and things like that. There was a, a sense of responsibility that also kind of connected with a sense of shared prosperity. But you saw that over the course of the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s until the gas crisis, you actually saw um, rising incomes, uh, 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 ascended middle class um, that grew as the labor movement grew. Those lines on Those graphs lines are exactly on graphs. the same. And, yeah. and you saw right. that. And you saw that not only in the United States, but you saw that in other places as well. And other, you know, others did labor relations differently, meaning that in Western Europe, health care and, and retirement security were done through the government, 
So it was only wages and terms and conditions of the factory or of employment. In America, it was healthcare and pensions were also connected um, to your employer. So the middle class grew with the union movement. And, and, and what made America the dominant power in the 1900s through, um, you know, through this century, through at least the beginning of this century, um, was uh, its ascendant middle class and, and, and showing that you could actually have a middle class um, as a way of mitigating the conflict between rich and poor. And, and that started to come apart around, you know, you could mark many points, but the firing of the air traffic controllers by Reagan was a moment partly to signal to employers that they didn't have to Actually, I think it started earlier. earlier. I think mm -hmm. it started with the, with the uh, gas crisis mm -hmm. because you started seeing the breakdown of our manufacturing sector and also with the ascendancy of um, uh, foreign steel. So you started seeing the breakdown of the steel industry, and then you started seeing the breakdown of the of the auto industry. I think it started before, symbolically, the firing of the air traffic controllers. Um, uh, that that was something that was a very negative symbolic uh, move that sent a message to employers that you could break unions, which was just different than where you know. Then um, so so that so I agree with you. That that was, you know, that was a big marker. But I think economically, it started beforehand. Right. So and my only point mm -hmm. about that was that up until then, it wasn't as if employers were unions' friends; they were no. adversaries. But what if you, I think you marked the same rise of those right-wing foundations, the Heritage Foundation, all those um, actors who are playing out now today around that period. Right. Around because then it became because, uh, and and this gets us to the public sector too, because then until that point, it was clear that it was the policy of the United States of America that for us to avoid another recession, another Great Depression, uh, where, where our people were in the streets on, on, on food lines, that you needed workers to be able to have some clout, and they got that clout through unions. So even though the United States wasn't, you know, sitting at the bargaining table all the time, but it was the policy of the United States to 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 have this kind of check and balance. And I think Reagan's firing of the air traffic controllers said to um, corporations all across America that 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 moral responsibility was over. Um, so, but so the the parallel was in the public sector. And, and, and this is what's so important about this particular case that's being argued um, in the Supreme Court. The public sector acts as an employer too. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a cop, you're a teacher, you're a firefighter, you know, you're, you work in, you know, in water filtration. The, the government is your employer. It's not the sovereign, but it's your employer. And frankly, People want their services to be efficient and effective, and they want their communities to be safe. And over the course of time, states recognized, not all states, but states recognized that they were going to have more efficiency and, um, in services, and they would have more um, 
stability and certainty and certainty mm. and less um, uh, crisis if they did collect if if they if 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 employees wanted it and they had um, and they had unions who then collectively bargained. It was a way of creating fairness, but it was also a way of creating more effective services, which is part of the reason why there are a number of governors and state legislators, both Republican and Democrat, who have filed a Mickey brief on our behalf in the Jan- in the Janus case for making that and, and what we've seen. And you can see it from the states that have collective bargaining versus the states that don't. Strong unions equal strong communities. So... This is the this is what this case is really about for 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 everyone you know who who hasn't followed it. The twenty three states right now basically say that um, the way they want to do labor relations for their states, the way they want to have employee employer relations, like the relationship between the boss and the employees, is that if workers want it. They have unions and collective bargaining. And with one caveat, which is the union has to represent everybody. Everybody, right. Not just some people, but you have to represent everybody. And so that caveat then becomes, assuming you represent everybody, then people don't have to become members, but they pay a fair share for that representation. Mm. So so somebody who doesn't want to become a member, say, say the membership fee is a hundred bucks a year. And and we have to organize ourselves so that that proportion that goes to politics is not charged to a non-member. So say $20 goes to politics, you know, in terms of whether you're, you know, um, helping candidates or producing or, a leaflet, you know, or, producing a leaflet yeah. or something like that. So we have to do the accounting so that we send back to the non-member $20 of the $100. And and so, so so the case is is about whether um, Mark Janice, who happens to not like what the union does politically, but really still wants to be get the services. He still wants to have that paycheck. Yeah, he still wants to have that paycheck, and he still wants to have this as a result result of of, the work. Exactly. Whether he can opt out under some First Amendment theory that even libertarian First Amendment scholars that have been cited by these same conservative judges think is, um, is wrongheaded. Well, Last thing I'll say. So then, so, so what you see is that these groups that hate us, that want unions gone, this is really a defunding strategy mm, because what they want is they don't care really about the people right now who are non-members, but they don't want the union to have a funding mechanism that says whether you're a member or not a member, you still pay a fair share for the representation. And what the Koch brothers and others have now said is they're not spending $80 million to defund and defang us. They have, after the Trump tax cut, they've increased that to $400 million um, to break us. Because what we have seen already is that they're going to try to do a huge PR campaign to try to get a whole bunch of people to opt out of their union and to say that, oh, you want to raise, you know, 
these folks have been fighting unions, fighting fighting to disinvest in states after state after state. You just have to look at the ALEC agenda. So they have been fighting against people getting living wages for years. But now they're going to turn around and say, you know, and my grandmother would say this would be the height of chutzpah. (laughs) They'll turn turn around and now put leaflets out that demagogues their union leaders and says... You want to get a raise? Get rid of your union. And 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 that is, you know, kind of sort of like what Paul Ryan did to people who said, see, we gave you, uh, we reduced your withholding by $1.50 so you could go to Costco. And so that's a great transition to the, the final thing I want to talk about. So I guess I could be the uh, voice of doom. I assume that we're going to have a 5-4 decision in Janus against um AFSCME, which affects all public sector unions. I'm, I know that sounds the voice of doom, but Gorsuch replacing Scalia is not an upgrade from that point of view. So well, the more important thing is, I mean, you, you can disagree that, but I'm interested in, so what's the what's next, next step? Yeah. So, so the day the decision comes out, what's the plan? How do we fight this? So the day, so we've been fighting it. The day the decision comes out is too late to fight it. Right. We've been actually, um, so so this has been our strategy. And look, it's not over till it's over. And frankly, if you read our briefs, and, and look, I, I was honored to help write our amicus brief um, because, you know, I still, I still keep my legal certification up. Um, but if you read AFSCME's brief and the amicus brief that, mm-hmm. briefs that our side put in, on the merits, we should win this case. But like this isn't meritorious. Know, this is but, about ideology. But I'm saying right. that purposely because this case, when it was first, this is a precedent that's 45 years old. The Abood the case, The precedent, yeah. the Abood case, was decided unanimously, mm. unanimously. So all I'm saying is that on on the, on, you know, it's not over till it's over. Having said that, we're not just fighting in the court. We're fighting three ways. Court, the court of public opinion why I'm doing this yes, podcast. Right. And third, and probably most importantly, is the is having real conversations with members. And it, this has been cathartic and transformative. And look, we're in a race. These guys have a lot of money. And 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 you're no one's ever going to be able to get to every in in a in a big local. In small locals you might be able to every single member every single year to talk about what the stakes are. But what I'm finding, and we've been doing this, um, we, we, our, our union has as its aspiration um, to have one-to-one member conversations with every one of our members on a periodic basis and, and, and to engage the members and community together in issues of common concern because what we've seen is that when the members are engaged and community is involved over an issue of common concern, we win. It is what has replaced the declining union density as a way of creating campaigns of of not of working families. So that's the so, silver lining in a certain way. So we've been having in, in, these kind of conversations. Yeah. So at Minnesota, I, I we and and this month, the last couple of months, we've been doing these regional meetings. There have been membership engagement plans um, in our union for the last couple of years. But 
you know, in the kind of run-up to the case, uh, we've had seven of eight regional meetings with hundreds of local leaders. We have 3,425 locals. By the time we finish all of the regional meetings, I will have been in a room with at least a third of our local leadership. And and you just, and so at the one I had yesterday, so we're in San Diego today, but the one I had yesterday in Ohio, we were with some of our locals in, in Minnesota. And I said, and I was lifting up that the recommit campaign in Minnesota um, had a 77% recommit already, meaning 77% of the members had recommitted to the union, had, had re-signed union cards. And one of the leaders came up to me and said, Randy, you're wrong. I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? And she showed me her phone, which said it had gone up to 79%. Oh, awesome. And so, and New York, NYSIT, New York State United Teachers, knocking on the doors this fall as part of the campaign against the constitutional amendment. They've talked to thousands of members. I think it's like 50,000 door knocks. And that went down to huge defeat, huge largely defeat. because of the door knocking and the and the member-to-member -member campaign. And that was the kind of thing that I thought was really the silver lining in this awful fight, if you will, is that not just in the public sector, but I think you and I would agree that sometimes the labor movement hasn't ha engaged its members directly on a one-to-one -one basis, on a regular basis, Correct. right? And, and it's because, and, and it's because everybody, look, everybody's busy. And so people ended up outsourcing their power to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So the members kind of saw it as this is a contract that in exchange for my paying dues, you represent me, as opposed to a union being a dynamic institution about what we together do to, to help make lives better. And, and frankly, those of us who lead unions, look, we are, we are on a perch for a moment. It's the members' union. You, you, you need to, you know, the, you need to lead in a way that, you know, you fight the fight, you care about people, you show up. But your power, the values come from the members wanting a better life. And, and frankly, in our union, we are a, a union of professionals in public service. We want to make sure that our patients and our kids and our communities have a better life. So it's both the people we represent and the people we serve. And so we're in a race with the bad guys about whether or not this institution that is the only vehicle to help people have a better life, to lower class size, to make sure special needs kids have the services they need, to get higher wages, to have a secure retirement, to have a voice at work, to have this week, you know, a strike in West Virginia trying to make sure that there's not declining salaries and not declining services in, 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 in West Virginia schools, you know, water filtration in, in, um, in, in Puerto Rico, you know, the fight working with the kids in Parkland for, for safe schools. This is who we are as a union. This is what we fight for, a better life for people so that every working family can have access to the American dream.
And last up, I wanted people to hear a little bit about what actually happened during the oral argument at the Supreme Court. So we get to welcome back David Strom, the general counsel of the American Federation of Teachers, who was in the court's chambers and has been on our podcast before. And David, you know, um, oral arguments in a certain way, and you're the expert at this, this was my my impression as a layperson, they're really about, in some way, some sort of theater and dance, meaning by the time the justices get to the oral arguments, they've read all the briefs that have been submitted and, and or their clerks have read them. And so they've already pretty much fashioned a lot of their views. Now, sometimes they use the oral arguments to try to convince each other, make arguments to others. Other justice, but what was the feeling? Did you get a sense that there really was a space where there's someone to persuade on that bench? You know, Jonathan, I, I think you summarized the dynamic of the oral argument very well. And and you know, the, the person, the justice who, you know, I think we all don't know yet where he will turn out is Gorsuch because he did not ask a single question. At the same time, he was taking notes, so uh-huh. he was attentive. This was not one of those cases where a justice was just not interested and had already made up his mind. He seemed to be you know, focused on the issues, but not willing or ready to ask questions. And, and that's what you know, has many people uh, guessing as to why. So, okay, I'm going to play the devil's advocate a little bit about this. That feels like we're hanging our hopes on a very, 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 I don't know how many varies I can use, slim read here, because, I mean, it strikes me just from his previous positions, his previous rulings and cases since he's been on the court, that he's a, what I call a more superficial, lightweight version of Scalia, meaning Scalia had some, you know, at least perceived depth to his arguments. And And Gorsuch is an ideologue, a right-wing ideologue. So why do we think that he's not going to be the fifth vote in this case, in favor of Janus, obviously? Yes. Well, so that, I mean, it's um, it's a good question. And I I think if if you were going to look at the glass as being half full um, and, and trying to be optimistic there, what you could say is that even as an originalist, you know, somebody who believes that you don't interpret the Constitution as a living document that is meant to adapt to the times in which it is actually existing in, but instead you try and interpret it based on what the founders thought in 1789. If you look at it that way, which is his view by and large, then public employees um, did not have First Amendment rights, and public employers got to regulate their employees the way um, private employers did, meaning that um, there was no First Amendment right of a public employee to protest mm-hmm. um, as an employee, you know, when the government took certain actions. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if, if that's your view, you know, if you're an originalist, then um, you could think and say, well, that means that a state or any other public employer can adopt fair share uh, collective bargaining with fair share because it thinks it's in its interest to have uh, a union that represents employees and that it makes sense to have that union as the single representative of all the employees in a bargaining unit because that's more efficient for it. And that it thinks that there's labor stability, labor peace, um, and free rider issues to having fair share. And then Mark Janus doesn't have any rights. The First right. Amendment doesn't apply to him. So that would be an originalist view if you're going to be an optimist for, for Gorsuch. 
Now, does Gorsuch have any um, history or background in terms of really strongly believing in precedent? Because you could argue that that's something to hang your hat on, given that Abood, which was decided 40 years ago and is the standard for this, you feel like the, the standard and the precedent is fair share fees are totally legitimate. So is that something to believe that he might turn to? You know, that that's a really, it's a good question. And, and I think the, the reason to be uh, concerned about that with him is that originalists tend to to believe that, you know, not all precedent is good mm, precedent. I see. Um, uh, and, and, you know, that while, you know, precedent has, you know, the stability um, uh, value that the law prizes so that people can make decisions, you know, with some certainty about what's going to happen next, um, that originalists also, you know, uh, believe that decisions that don't comport with their analysis of originalism, you know, aren't necessarily as deserving of stability because they were wrongly decided. Mm-hmm. Right. Got it. So to give a sense of the uh, atmosphere in the chambers, I mean, I've been in the Supreme Court chambers for an argument once in my life, and I know that it is always somewhat somber or very serious, but was there anything that you sensed in terms of tension or atmosphere that was different? Because you've been to other arguments in the past, I assume. Yes. Um, Well, I I think you can say that, you know, in this case and this issue, you had a very engaged bench, meaning the justices were um, very, with the exception of Gorsuch and the chief, highly prepared, highly engaged. They asked lots of questions. And <laughs> with the, the exception, the, I assume with the exception of Clarence Thomas. <laughs> right. Clarence Thomas. Exactly. He never Clarence asked Thomas. Yeah. Right. As, as we know, is, is that's just not his role. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but but yeah. but the you know, the uh, the lawyers you know, wouldn't have got, didn't get through really their second or third sentence of their presentations before they were being interrupted by a justice. And, you know, from that point, then the interruptions, you know, continued throughout their presentation. So um, that they, you had a, a very, I, I think, you know, what you call a warm or hot bench. Um, and, and you also had a bench in which, to be honest, um, you know, world views, I, you know, personal world views and ideologies were more apparent and on display, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, particularly with Justice Kennedy and with Justice Sotomayor. Um, yeah. they, they both were, you know, very, um, I think, concerned about this case and, and whether it was being decided on ideological grounds or not, and, and whether that was, you know, really the right role for the court to take. With opposite perspectives, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And Kennedy, from what I read, who is typically seen as a swing vote, was quite hostile to our position, to the AFSCME union position. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Kennedy um, was not, uh, he did not, he believed that um, when it came to public employee unions and their relationship in bargaining with public employers, that they were totally different from the private sector and that just about everything that the public employee unions bargained over was ideological and political. And, and you even had this very, uh, I think, you know, strong question to the lawyer representing AFSCME, David Frederick. And he said, if you lose this case, will unions be weaker uh, politically? 
And, and the, uh, the union lawyer said, well, that's not the issue in this case. That's not the issue in the First Amendment. He said, answer my question. Uh, <laughs> you know, isn't that what this case is all about? You know, so he was very, um, his worldview of the role of public employee unions was very apparent and he's wearing it on his shirt sleeve. Mm-hmm. Okay, and last question, and you are permitted to say you don't want to answer this following question. If you and I okay. were, if you, it, uh, you'll see what I mean. If you and I were, were taking a trip to Vegas right now, and we walk mm-hmm. up to the betting uh, window, and this case was, uh, you could bet on this case, um, I would bet that we are going to lose this case. Um, do you want to offer an opinion about this, or would you prefer to remain um, not in that betting mode? I, I think that I, I I couldn't I would say we have a difficult case to win because we have you know um, a a court that is ideologically divided mm-hmm. um, and on this and it, it is divided almost you know directly along the lines of um, the whether they were appointed by a Democratic or a Republican president mm-hmm. um, um, and, and it's it's an example of the division on the court. Uh, and it becoming more partisan. And we don't know where Justice Gorsuch is. And, and that makes it very hard to handicap what's going on. We, we, what we do know is what he has done in the past on the appellate court. Um, and he doesn't have a major labor case yet under his belt on the Supreme Court. Um, so, you know, that that becomes the, the you know, really the, the swing, the swing man, the swing vote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, to your point, actually, about the division and how they uh, split up based on which uh, president appointed them, this is, uh, you know, to put a fine point on it, this is why elections matter. So much so, yes, and and absolutely, uh, why elections matter. And, you know, we, we would be obviously in, in such a different world had the election come out differently or had, had Barack Obama, um, you know, mm-hmm. um, nomination of Merrick Garland been, you know, allowed to go to the Senate by um, Republican uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Right. Well, McConnell has not only stolen a Supreme Court seat, but with this uh, decision, he is going to steal the livelihoods potentially of not just millions of public sector workers, but millions of all workers because of what it's going to do potentially. And I know, having talked to Randy at length, there's a way in which the labor movement's going to respond, but this is clearly an attack on people's standard of living. It absolutely is. I mean, if, you know, I, I, I'm sure you you know so well because you you research and you re- talk about this issue. But you know, the, the the groups that are behind this case, you know, have as you know as they already have started to plan for their agenda. Of course, is is to be able to advance their private interests, their their corporate interests, um, and to to profit and and to um, you know they want to in essence ensure that there is a less effective, weaker labor movement that is less able to advance, um, whether it's contracts to benefit uh, members or legislation and policies to benefit uh, members and legislation. You know, they, they don't want to see the fight for 15. They don't want to see, you know, uh, more teachers in classrooms and smaller class size and, and uh, you know, more effective learning programs that use resources um, to reach out to high-need students. They want to shrink the role of government and shrink um, what are the services provided to um, middle class and, and working people.
And now it's time for our Robber Baron of the Week. And our Robber Baron of the Week are actually Robber Barons, that would be plural of the week, and they would be the right-wing funders of the attack against public sector unions, which is an attack on every person who is not rich in this country. And just to mention a few of these right-wing funders, the Lyndon Harry Bradley Foundation, the Walton Family Foundation, which makes its living, frankly, out of making people poor and preying on poor people, the Ed Uline Family Foundation, which has been a big backer of Scott Walker in Wisconsin, the Mercer Family Foundation, which was a big backer until they recently had a falling out, as I mentioned, uh, of Steve Bannon, the friend of the white nationalists. And finally, the Donors Capital Fund, which gets money from the Koch brothers and the DeVos family. All of these people and many more are our robber barons of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, Celine McNicholas, Randy Weingarten, and David Strom. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Please become a sponsor of this podcast. You can do that by going to workinglife.org and click on the podcast tab. Subscribe to the podcast and look forward to having you back next week. 